Our first scripture this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 1 through 5. Let us listen now for God's word to us. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. See, you shall, you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Our second scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 13 to 21. Let us listen again for God's word to us. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away, so that you may go into the, so they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I, I always find these miracle stories of Jesus so interesting. It, because I think in part because they don't make a whole lot of sense to, to us, to most of us these days. In our 21st century, post-enlightenment, modern or post-modern or post postmodern, wherever we are now, you know, this, this world of ours that is so scientifically advanced that our, our technology, you know, our phones and our computers, they become obsolete by the time we open them from their packaging. That, you know, in this world of ours that we live in, we, we tend to think we kind of have things figured out. Like, we know what's going on around us. We have a world of information at our fingertips. And we arrogantly pretend that we can explain everything around us. And in this world where we can observe and hypothesize and test and analyze complex data faster than ever, we sometimes don't know what to do with these miracle stories. 
But surprisingly, during the time of Jesus, claims of miracles performed were actually not all that special or unique. There were plenty of alleged magicians and sorcerers who were capable of performing all sorts of wonders for the people. So we often think of miracles that Jesus did as something that somehow proves that Jesus was divine, that would prove to the people that he was who he said he was. That we know he was God in the flesh because he was able to walk on water. He was able to heal the sick, feed thousands of people with nothing but a couple of filet of fish sandwiches. But the author of John's Gospel, which also has this story, helps us understand a little better, I think, when he refers to Jesus' miracles not as miracles, but as signs. Things that signify something. Things that tell us something about who this Jesus really is. And even more importantly, about who God is. What matters is not so much the thing itself, but what it points to. And this is the only miracle, in fact, not including the resurrection, that is recorded in all four Gospels. And it's the only one that Jesus does multiple times in the Gospels. It happens again just about a chapter and a half later. In other words, if we didn't realize how important this one in particular was, then we better listen up. Now our text begins with the narrator saying, when Jesus heard this, and when we hear that, heard this, we should probably ask the question, well, what is this, right? And when we look at the 12 verses that come before this story, we see that this is referring to the death of John the Baptist at the hands of Herod. But what also shouldn't be missed about that context is the way that John was killed. It was during Herod's birthday party, this elaborate feast and lavish celebration. So the scene moves quickly from one of excess to one of scarcity. On the one hand, we have this ruler of an occupying power partying in his mansion, right? Living the life of pure self-indulgence and glut. And then on the other, we see thousands of hungry people with no way to secure food for themselves. Food scarcity was rampant during, during this time, especially for peasants living under Roman rule. Last week, when the youth and we, we were with the youth in Atlanta, we were pulling weeds in the community garden, like you heard about last week, and we, we learned about what's called food deserts. Now, food deserts are areas where access to nutritious food is either very hard to come by because of distances traveled to, to grocery stores that carry it, or whatever you can get is incredibly unaffordable. So if you're on a fixed income or don't have uh, the means, then it's difficult for you to afford fruits and vegetables in some places. First century Palestine under Roman occupation was an enormous food desert. Now we should hear that reality in the background every single time we pray the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. These were people praying that in the midst, in a place where there was no daily bread very often. And when Jesus and his disciples are surrounded by a throng of hungry people, they have very different reactions, don't they? The disciples want to send them away to the nearest village so they can buy their own food. No doubt, for some, that would not have been a problem. But for many others, and probably the majority, they may not have had a meal that night if the disciples had their way. But Jesus reacts very differently. Matthew tells us that 
he had compassion on them, and that he healed their sick. Now, the Greek word for compassion here is very, very strong. It, it's derived from the word that refers to your internal organs, your guts, your innards. So when Matthew says that Jesus felt compassion for the people, what he's really telling us is that Jesus' guts were churning for the people. He felt it deeply within his body. He felt their hunger. So he tells them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They need not go away. That's, that's a line that should haunt those of us, myself included, whose first instinct when we see someone hungry or in need is, go your own way. You got yourself into this mess. You can get yourself out of it. And then Jesus gets to work, right? He says, okay, what do we got? What do we have? What can we use? What can we work with here? What can we give to these folks? And the disciples say, nothing. All we have is five loaves and two fish. There's, there's 5,000 men here, plus women and children. So, I mean, what are we talking? 10,000? 15? Maybe more? I mean, a bunch of people. There's a ton of people here. Far more than she'd be able to be fed by five loaves and two measly fish. But Jesus takes what little is available to them, what little resources they have, and he tells the crowd to sit. And once they're seated, he takes the food that was offered. He blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to the disciples to give to the crowd. Now that string of verbs there, take, bless, break, and give, should sound a little familiar. These these are the exact same verbs that are used at the Last Supper. This is Eucharistic language. These people are gathered to take communion with the Lord himself. And then the disciples take it out to the people and everyone eats and is filled. And in the context of food scarcity, people in this time in this time and place were rarely, if ever, truly filled. They ate enough to get by. Enough to last them another day without squandering their precious few resources. To eat so much to the point of being filled was an experience reserved for the wealthy, for the powerful, for the elite, folks like Herod. But these folks on this day, they eat and are filled to the point that there are 12 baskets of crumbs left over. One basket for each disciple who is assisting. And it, the symbolism also should not be lost, one for each tribe of Israel as well. This is a public display of God's abundance in the midst of scarcity, a palpable reminder that God has not abandoned God's people, that even though they feel crushed by their foreign occupiers, God's covenantal promises are still true, are still good. God has not abandoned God's people. And Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. Jesus puts flesh on that odd or even somewhat nonsensical phrase in the text that we read from Isaiah this morning, where the prophet entreats, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you that have no money, come buy and eat. How are those who have no money supposed to buy and eat? Because in God's economy, there is always enough to go around, and it's constantly multiplying. Now, not coincidentally, 
the prophet, Isaiah, who is probably writing during the time of Babylonian captivity and exile, he reminds the people about God's covenantal faithfulness and keeping the covenant. And he lifts up Israel's great king, David, as a reminder of God's promise, God's blessing, and God's steadfast love for God's people. Isaiah says that God made Davis a witness and that through David and his descendants, all of the nations of the earth will flock to God's people because of how God has blessed them. But it's kind of strange, I think. When I'm struck when I read that. I mean, witness isn't necessarily the first word I would use to describe David. It seems an odd choice of words. And in fact, I don't think it's the second or third word I would, I would use either. Now, don't get me wrong, I like David. He did some, some good stuff. He had some great moments, right? There's that whole Goliath scene that's pretty fun. Um, he has a clearly a special relationship with God, right? He's a man after God's own heart. He returned the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, had mercy on many, many people, and there was general prosperity in the kingdom during, that, during his reign. But, as we also know, there's that whole Bathsheba-Uriah incident that is kind of a big deal for someone uh, who is allegedly, again, a man after God's own heart. He also was a commander of a great deal of slaughter. And then to top it all off, at the end of his reign, God's anger is kindled against Israel because of David's actions, because of what David did. And then God gives David a choice. God said, tells David he can either choose pestilence for his people as his punishment, which would result in the death of about 70,000, or he can choose a punishment that will only be meted out on him. David chooses the former. He chooses to have the people punished instead of him for his own sins. He cared more about his own life than the life of the people, of his people, and chose to protect himself instead of the thousands of innocents. Some witness, huh? So if God indeed made him a witness, as Isaiah says, there seems to have been a bit of a struggle between how he chose to live that witness out. But it's curious, though, that that translations tend to render the Hebrew word here made. You know, it says, God made him a witness. When the word that's actually used means to give. So more accurately, it should read, See, I gave him a witness to the peoples. So in other words, it's not so much that God thought David worthy enough to be made into a witness, but perhaps instead that God knew just how messed up and disappointing David was, and chose him not in spite of that fact, but precisely because of it. The witness that David has and the witness that he was is a pure gift. It's not something that he earned. David, in all of his flawed and broken messiness, is exactly the type of person that God chooses, that God gifts. And thank God for that. There's Hope for us yet that if God can use even David, then perhaps God can also use us. Likewise, the absolute failure of the disciples to understand and be faithful to Jesus is well noted all throughout the Gospels. But these are the ones that he purposefully chose. Just as God gave David a witness to the peoples, so Jesus gave the disciples a witness to the peoples. And he gives us a witness too. That is a pure gift. 
Because in all of our broken and flawed messiness, Christ still chooses to give us a witness to the peoples. But what's so fascinating, I think, about the witness that Jesus gives to the disciples on this particular day is that it's basically impossible, when you read the story, it's impossible to pinpoint the precise moments of the miracle where the fish and the loaves are multiplied. There's no moment where, Jesus, where the narrator says, and then there were tons of loaves and fishes, enough to go around. We never actually see it happen. And, and the crowd that was gathered, I mean, they, they seem like they're kind of in the dark on this whole thing. They probably had no idea that a miracle even took place. Because Jesus didn't stand up before them and say, and now for my next trick, I will, you know, whatever. They probably just thought, gee, what a nice guy, you know. He brought all this food out here for us. He got his disciples together, and they bought food for all of us. The vast majority of them probably had no clue what they were a part of on that day. So perhaps the real miracle here, the real sign, isn't so much the multiplication of the elements, though that's clearly impressive, but in the fact that the disciples were willing to do what was asked of them, even though it made absolutely no sense. That, that even though it was pure insanity to believe that five loaves and two fish would be enough to fill basically an NBA stadium worth of people. But Jesus commanded, and they listened. They trusted that even in the midst of such abject scarcity, God's abundance would ultimately prove trustworthy. That in spite of their doubts that there would be enough to go around, they, they obeyed. And their simple act of obedience is nothing short of miraculous. This is the witness that Jesus gave to them. And the witness that Jesus gives to us when we respond in obedience to what might otherwise seem absurd to us. But remember, to the people that were gathered there, there was nothing necessarily miraculous or extraordinary that, that took place that day. It was a special day because their tummies were full for perhaps the first time in a long time. But to them, it just meant that someone was gracious enough to bring a ton of food along with them. It was a thoroughly ordinary event that takes on extraordinary significance for those who have eyes to see. It was an ordinary miracle, which feels like a bit of an oxymoron. But this is how God works. In the mundane acts of obedience of those who respond to God's call, even when it seems absurd. And this is how we are called to be in the world, responding to the needs of those around us, even when it feels insurmountable or pointless, stuffing backpacks with school supplies, even though we know there's no way we can provide supplies for every child in this county, and that even if we did, it's not going to magically make them successful in school or raise our school's grades, bringing in diapers and wipes and formula and pacifiers and blankets and clothes, even though we know we can't care for and provide for every needy baby in this county. Spending time with friends and neighbors like we did on Saturday in Buddy Parker Park, even though we know at times it can be a dangerous place. Fostering relationships across racial, socioeconomic, political, denominational, and every other kind of line and divide that there is, though we are constantly told to fear what is different. When we respond to Christ's command and act out of God's abundance instead of the world's scarcity, 
we see God's kingdom bursting forth all around us. And miracles become ordinary. They become part of our everyday existence. In our simple acts of obedience, we live out the witness that God gives us. And when we live into God's gift and promise, we can experience the miracle of God's abundance. Even in this place, in every place, wherever Christ calls us. Amen.